Guess what will kick you out of ketosis? Ketones. Well, not really. Ketones won't kick you out of ketosis, but they do suppress their own production. And that's a critically important negative feedback loop that's part of ketone homeostasis. Ketone homeostasis has two objectives. One is to keep ketones high enough to effectively feed the brain. The other is to keep them low enough to avoid ketoacidosis, a serious and life-threatening medical condition that we'll talk about in the next lesson. So for today, let's take a look at how we keep ketones right in their sweet spot. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, we are now in our 35th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. And today we're talking about ketone homeostasis. As you can see on the screen, after an overnight fast, you'll produce 60 to 140 kilocalories, calories as we usually call them, of ketones. You're producing them at a rate of 0.2 to 0.4 millimoles per minute. A mole or a millimole is a unit of the number of molecules you're making. Your ketone concentrations will be 0.1 to 0.4 millimoles per liter or millimolar total ketone bodies. That's a little bit higher number than what you get on a ketone meter that you'd use at home, which is measuring beta-hydroxybutyrate. This is the sum of all of the ketone bodies in the person's blood, which would be measured in a research study. If you compare the overnight fast to five days of fasting, you'll see that both the rate of production and the concentration increase. The rate of ketone production rises from 0.2 to 0.4 to 1.5 to 2.5 millimoles per minute, and the concentration rises to 7 to 10 millimolar or millimoles per liter. On the one hand, both are increasing, but there's a huge discrepancy. Production is only increasing four to five-fold, whereas concentrations are rising 40 to 50-fold. That means that you're producing way more than you're using, and that's why the concentration is going up so high in the blood, because they're accumulating there. But after five days of fasting, production and concentration hit a plateau, and they stay stable, as can be seen here showing data for production on the top and concentration on the bottom, over the course of 21 days of fasting. So we have three questions here. Number one, why the increase over the first five days? Number two, why is that increase so much greater for the concentration than it is for the rate of production? And then number three, why do they stabilize over time? The first of these questions is the easiest, so let's tackle that first and get it out of the way. Explaining the increased rate of production over the first five days follows straightforwardly from the basic principles of ketogenesis that we've already talked about. First of all, gluconeogenesis leads to oxaloacetate depletion. 
gluconeogenesis is going to steadily rise above basal levels, even starting at the first day of fasting. But when you first start fasting, you have glycogen, and your maximal need for gluconeogenesis takes running out of both the glucose from your last meal and the glycogen stored in your liver before it's really needed at maximal levels. Furthermore, gluconeogenesis is taxing the oxaloacetate supply, but when that really hits ketogenesis, may take some time as oxaloacetate and its precursors that are easily available in the liver become more and more depleted. During this time, you have declining insulin, and that's part of the gluconeogenesis. Lower insulin, higher glucagon, and higher levels of other hormones that antagonize insulin are all going to play a role in stimulating the gluconeogenesis. But on top of this, it's not only insulin that's playing a role in fatty acids entering the mitochondrion, but also just energy status in general. Because remember from previous lessons that the concentration of malonyl-CoA is the principal guardian of the transport of fatty acids into the mitochondrion. When we have high malonyl-CoA, we have low CPT1 activity. That means that we're shutting down the carnitine shuttle that transports fatty acids into the mitochondrion. Malonyl-CoA is regulated by insulin, but it's also regulated simply by energy levels reflected in things like ATP, AMP, AMPK, and citrate. So over the course of fasting, you have less and less insulin, you have lower and lower energy status, that increases CPT1 activity in hepatic mitochondria and lets the floodgates in for the transport of fatty acids for beta oxidation that can then lead to ketogenesis. The declining insulin and rising adrenaline are also the key factors that will increase adipose tissue lipolysis over time. As you have more fatty acids moving into the bloodstream and you have increased CPT1 activity in hepatic mitochondria, letting them in for beta oxidation, you have more and more acetyl-CoA being generated, but oxaloacetate is leaving for gluconeogenesis. All these things converge to, over the course of the first five days, lead to steadily increasing rates of ketone body production. The third question is the next simplest to tackle, and this is why does the rate of ketone body production and the concentration of ketones stabilize over time? And that's because ketone bodies suppress adipose tissue lipolysis. This is a form of a negative feedback loop where the higher your levels of ketones are, the more they inhibit the production of new ketones by preventing adipose tissue from releasing further fatty acids. To see the direct effect of ketones in suppressing lipolysis, take a look at this study from 2015 where they took healthy males after an overnight fast and they infused them with increasing concentrations of beta-hydroxybutyrate. So this is direct infusion of exogenous ketones. And you can see, first of all, their plasma levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate in the upper left panel. And you can see that the low rate of infusion, of infusion gave them 0.5 millimolar. The medium infusion gave them almost but not quite one millimolar. 
a little under one, and the high rate of infusion gave them 1.5 millimolar or a little higher. You can see that their acetoacetate levels also rose, and that's because beta-hydroxybutyrate can be converted to acetoacetate. But take a look at the big panel on the right. This is showing the rate of appearance of glycerol in the plasma. This is the glycerol backbone of adipose tissue triglycerides, and this is an index of the rate of lipolysis. You can see that this rate was cut down by the low hydroxy the low infusion of beta-hydroxybutyrate. And you can't really see a difference with the medium rate of infusion, but the high rate of infusion decreased it even further. So there's a dose-dependent decrease in lipolysis with increasing concentrations of beta-hydroxybutyrate. Why this happens isn't entirely clear. One thing that we know is that ketones act on the pancreas to stimulate insulin. The rise in insulin after an infusion of exogenous ketones generally can only be seen for 10 or 15 minutes before it goes back down, but it could play a role. And it could be the case that ketones are always contributing to the basal levels of insulin. In other words, you may only see a spike for a certain period of time, but it may be the case that insulin levels would be lower than they otherwise would be during fasting were it not for the concentrations of ketones that you see in the bloodstream. But no one has been able to show ketones stimulating the insulin response to the pancreas at levels lower than 2 millimolar. And this is important because in the previous study, we saw 0.5 millimoles per liter beta-hydroxybutyrate suppress adipose tissue lipolysis. And that level in that study did not rise insulin levels. I'll show you the insulin levels at the, in that study at the end of the lesson, but we need to talk, few, talk through a few other things first to make sense of it. In addition, we know that ketones act on adipose tissue to directly suppress lipolysis. We do not know at exactly what concentration. We don't know much about the mechanisms. One mechanism that's been identified is that beta-hydroxybutyrate, although not other ketones, but beta-hydroxybutyrate binds to what has in the past been called the nicotinic acid receptor, and some people now call it the beta-hydroxybutyrate receptor. This is the same receptor that high doses of niacin will bind to that contributes to the flushing reaction from high-dose niacin supplements. Beta-hydroxybutyrate binds that receptor, and it's binding that receptor suppresses adipose tissue lipolysis. Whether there are other mechanisms besides this, we don't know. In any case, through their direct actions on adipose tissue and through the actions of insulin, adipose tissue lipolysis is suppressed. That leads to less free fatty acids, and that leads to less ketones. Now, this doesn't mean that free fatty acids and ketones go down. What it means is that ketones and free fatty acids stop rising because once you cross a certain threshold of ketone concentrations, you are bringing lipolysis down at the same rate so that lipolysis and ketogenesis stabilizes. So far, we've answered two of our questions. 
Number one was, why are the ketone concentrations rising over time in the first five days? And it's because it takes time for the pressure for gluconeogenesis, the change in hormones, and the change in, in energy status to all lead to the factors that we know precipitate ketogenesis and for all of that to reach maximal levels. The number two question that we answered was, why do ketone levels and production rates stabilize after the first five days? And it's because of the negative feedback loop with ketones suppressing lipolysis both directly and through stimulation of insulin. Now we'll move on to tackle the third and most difficult question. Why does the production rate come up only four to five-fold, and yet the concentration of ketones rise 40 to 50-fold? What on earth is going on there? Well, take a look at this data compiled from a number of studies under different conditions where the extraction rates, meaning the amount of ketones taken up from the blood by the brain and muscle were measured. You can see that well under one millimolar total ketone bodies, muscle can take up up to 50% of the ketones from the blood. But that declines precipitously as total ketone body concentrations rise. And as you get up to six or seven millimoles per liter ketone bodies, which is what you reach as you're plateauing, the uptake in muscle has dropped from 50% to 5%. In other words, muscle will only take up a very limited amount of ketone bodies, and the amount that it will take up is stabilizing and maybe even dropping as ketone levels rise. You can contrast this with the brain, where under any level of ketone bodies that have been measured, the brain's taking up about 10 to 15% of the ketones that pass up against the blood-brain barrier. What this figure is hinting at so far is that by refusing to take up additional ketones, muscle is allowing the ketone concentration in the blood to reach very high levels as the production rate increases. And that will enable the brain to get a lot more ketones because the brain is taking up a constant proportion no matter what the ketone level. And the only way to get more ketones in the brain is to get higher concentrations of ketones in the blood. We don't know exactly why muscle and other tissues take up such low amounts of ketones as ketogenesis ensues. One possible mechanism that's been shown is that acetoacetate at very high concentrations inhibits SCOT, the enzyme that is needed for its utilization. So it's possible that that effect itself plays into a self-limiting utilization of ketone bodies in skeletal muscle. Nevertheless, this doesn't kick into very high concentrations in the muscle. And as we saw in the previous slide, there seems to be a limitation of skeletal muscle uptake at less than one millimolar. So that seems a rather poor explanation. My suspicion is that this is about substrate 
competition in the muscle tissue. Over the course of a five-day fast, what you're seeing is that ketones get directed to the brain and fatty acids get directed to the muscle tissue and to all the other tissues that are able to burn on fatty acids. When you have fatty acids being taken up by muscle tissue, they get beta-oxidized, and beta-oxidation generates NADH, and it uses up NAD+. We saw before that in order to utilize ketone bodies, you need NAD+, to convert beta-hydroxybutyrate to acetoacetate. If beta-oxidation of fatty acids is generating a lot of NADH, that favors conversion of acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate instead of the conversion in the opposite direction. If you fail to convert your beta-hydroxybutyrate to acetoacetate and you instead convert your acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate, or put another way, if this reversible reaction operates in net transformation of acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate, that's net inhibition of ketone utilization because you can't utilize beta-hydroxybutyrate directly. Beta-hydroxybutyrate concentrations will rise. That will favor transport of beta-hydroxybutyrate out of the mitochondrion instead of into it. And similarly, in the cytosol, beta-hydroxybutyrate concentrations will rise, favoring transport of beta-hydroxybutyrate out of the cell instead of into it. My suspicion is that this substrate competition with fatty acids for energy metabolism is the primary reason that skeletal muscle and other tissues besides the brain will quickly start rejecting ketones as their concentrations rise. Because remember, at that same time, lipolysis is rising, fatty acid uptake is rising, thus the inhibition. And remember also, the brain cannot take up fatty acids so this substrate competition will not exist in the brain, and that's going to favor constant uptake by the brain. If we return to this model of the blood-brain barrier, we can see another case where substrate competition becomes important. Glucose transporters are reversible. MCT1 is reversible. So whether you get transport of glucose into the brain or out, ketones in or out, is going to be dictated by the concentration gradient. You will get faster net transfer of ketones into the brain if you have faster ketone utilization in the brain. You will get faster transport of glucose into the brain if you have faster glucose utilization in the brain. The same thing is true of rising concentrations in the blood. As glucose goes up in the blood, that favors transport into the brain as ketones go up in the blood that favors transport into the brain. So one of the strategies to get ketones into the brain is for skeletal muscle and all the other tissues to run on fatty acids instead of ketones so that ketone concentrations in the blood rise massively disproportionate to the rate of production. It's the high concentration that allows the ketones to have net transport at a very rapid rate into the brain. But if the brain is using glucose for fuel, then to the, to the proportionate degree, it will use fewer ketones. So if you really want to maximize ketones getting into the brain and being utilized, you also want to lower the levels of blood glucose. And in fact, one aspect of ketone homeostasis 
is that ketones are intrinsically hypoglycemic. Ketones will lower the level of blood glucose to reduce competition by glucose for utilization in the brain. By reducing glucose concentrations, you get less competition, you get faster utilization of ketones, and that assists faster transport of ketones into the brain. Let's come back to the study we looked at before where they infused beta-hydroxybutyrate in healthy males after an overnight fast at different levels. For your reference, I've kept the levels of ketone bodies in the blood on the left for the purposes of comparison. The new data that I'm showing you is glucose on the right. You can see that the low beta-hydroxybutyrate infusion, which had brought it to a little under 0.5 millimoles per liter, was hypoglycemic. It lowered blood glucose. The medium infusion, which brought it to between 0.5 and 1 millimolar, lowered blood glucose even further, and the high beta-hydroxybutyrate infusion lowered blood glucose the most. Although this study did not investigate the mechanism of lowering blood glucose, previous studies that are mostly old by now have shown that ketone bodies suppress glucose output by the liver. So it appears that it's suppressing gluconeogenesis or it's suppressing glycogenolysis or it's suppressing transport of glucose out of the liver in some way. All we can say is that number one, ketones are intrinsically hypoglycemic. Number two, it appears to be because they're slowing the release of glucose from the liver. Now, earlier studies identifying the hypoglycemic properties of ketones had suggested that it might be because ketones stimulate insulin. Ketones do stimulate insulin. But remember, number one, they stimulate insulin at two millimolar or higher. And in this study, we saw hypoglycemic actions at beta-hydroxybutyrate infusions that only led to 0.5 millimolar. So they suppress glucose levels at concentrations significantly lower than they than are needed to stimulate insulin. But also, Take a look right here at the insulin and glucagon data. The beta-hydroxybutyrate infusions did nothing to insulin at the low rate, but as the rate increased, they actually dropped insulin rather than rising it. Similarly, they increased levels of glucagon, the hormone that antagonizes insulin. Probably the reason that the insulin dropped and the glucagon rose at the medium and high infusions of beta-hydroxybutyrate is because the beta-hydroxybutyrate was hypoglycemic. And so when your blood glucose drops, you're going to have dropping insulin and rising glucagon in response. This just reinforces the point that beta-hydroxybutyrate must be hypoglycemic in a way that is not dependent on its insulin-stimulating properties. It seems to be either a direct action on the liver or some indirect action on another tissue that we don't understand, but more than likely, it's some kind of direct action on the liver to limit the output of glucose. My suspicion is that ketones are suppressing gluconeogenesis partly to help signal that they are available to the brain so you don't need as much gluconeogenesis so you can 
wind gluconeogenesis down and save your lean muscle tissue, but also because by suppressing glucose output from the liver, glucose concentrations go down, ketones have better competitive advantage to get into the brain and become the primary source of fuel. Although the details of the mechanisms are often unclear, there are two very clear aspects of ketone homeostasis that we can identify. First of all, ketones suppress lipolysis at adipose tissue, and since lipolysis is a major driver of ketone body formation, this exists as a negative feedback loop where ketones restrain their own production to stabilize themselves at a level that will not result in ketoacidosis, a serious and potentially fatal medical condition that we'll talk about in the next lesson. Additionally, ketones lower blood glucose and are not utilized very well by skeletal muscle and other tissues when their concentrations rise. As I stated before, I suspect this is because fatty acids are outcompeting them in most tissues besides the brain. This keeps ketone levels high in the blood, and in fact, as we saw at the beginning of the lesson, keeps them way higher than you would expect given the rate of ketone body production. And the high concentration of ketones and relatively lower concentration of glucose is what allow ketones to feed the brain. You want ketones to feed the brain and not other tissues during ketogenic conditions because, as we talked about in the last lesson, the physiological purpose of ketones is to spare lean mass by reducing the glucose requirement of the brain during fasting. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. To continue watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn, or you can sign up for MWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable audio and transcripts, a rich array of hyperlinked further reading material, and a community with a forum for each lesson. So if you want to own the lessons, study them, and get the most out of them, sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.